When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Psychology Talk podcast. We are your hosts, Dr. Scott Hoy, clinical psychologist. And Kyle Miller, licensed counselor. Psychology Talk is a unique conversation about psychology around the globe. We speak with psychology experts to keep you informed about current issues and trends. We advocate toward reducing stigma and educate about mental health. While you're listening, please take a moment to give us a review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, or your favorite streaming service. It helps us to continue providing you with quality programming. And now, enjoy the episode. Welcome. Uh, this is Kyle Miller, and on today's episode, I will be talking to Hirsch Wilson, who is the author of Firefighter Zen. Hirsch is a, a firefighter and a writer, and he is also the author of a book uh, called Play to Win. But today we're going to talk about Firefighter Zen. I'm really excited to talk to you, Hirsch. How are you? Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Thank Good. Thank you very much. Yeah. yeah, I'm glad you were able to come on. Um, so first of all, I, I'm really interested to hear a little bit more about uh, your, uh, before we jump into the book, I'd like to let our audience know a little bit about you. Um, are you still living in uh, New Mexico? Still in Santa Fe. We've been here since 1986. Okay, yeah. great, yeah. great. Yeah. Um, and you've been uh, a firefighter for over 30 years yeah, this is uh, my 33rd year anniversary. That is amazing. Uh, coming up this fall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been it's been it's been an education. It has been a revelation, uh, and it's, it has absolutely changed how we uh, approach life. Both my wife and I were firefighters, and it, okay. it really changed how we think about things. Yeah, Absolutely. that's that's amazing. And I yeah, I I read the book. I, I got to tell you, I think it's great. Um, I think there's a lot of really good uh, nuggets of wisdom in there. There's so much. I mean, we could probably talk for hours just, you know, going through the book part by part. Um, but the, I'm sure there are some uh, some particular pieces that uh, that I would love to hear about. Um, and just, you know, for, for our further, uh, information, uh, what else do you do since you're a volunteer? Are you still right. working in other areas? Yeah. So I have, um, uh, like career ADD. Um, <laughs> I, I started out, 
I went to college. I quit college. I was in theater and dance uh, for 10 years. Oh, wow. And then uh, I left that and I became a commercial pilot. Um, so okay. I, I flew for uh, about another five or six years. Then uh, my family, uh, we moved to Santa Fe, New Mexico from Minneapolis and started a, a family business uh, called Pecos River Learning Centers, mm. which was about bringing experiential learning and team building and culture work to large corporations. Okay. And I did that for about another 10 years. And I've always, during that time, I was always writing. And I joined the fire department in uh, 1987, I think. Okay. And it continued on that. So that's that's been one of my longest careers. Okay. Just being a firefighter. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. You said uh, before we got on, you said this, the 34th year. That yeah. is, that's amazing. Yeah, thank that's, you. Yeah. That's so great. Okay. Uh, so <clears throat> tell us a little bit, how did this book come to be Firefighter Zen? Yeah, the book came about... Um, uh, after about 25 years of being a firefighter and realizing that it had been such a revelation to me in terms of how we view life mm. uh, and, and, and how our approach to everything in our, in our life had changed based on being a firefighter. And it wasn't just in the firefighter world, but it was it, it, how it affected our, our view of life and death, how it affected our view of love, how it affected our view of our family. So that was such a profound change that uh, um, one day my wife, uh, Lori, who's also a firefighter, said, you need to write a book about this. Mm, so okay. and then, it, then it was a matter of kind of, and not wanting to just tell gory stories, but really to kind of uh, distill down what the kind of key lessons were uh, that would apply to everybody, um, uh, especially, especially what we're going through now. It, it's it seems highly applicable to to the you know I call this time the you know the the great unsettling mm. and uh, and and what I think and firefighter Gen has a lot to do with helping us through this. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, as I was reading through it, you you do share some really uh, intense and emotional stories and ones that really. Uh, it helped me to further understand. Now I've worked, I work with first responders in my ah. therapy practice. Right. And, um, this actually gave me, uh, an even deeper understanding of, uh, s s because a lot of fire or firefighters or, or police or, uh, even EMTs sometimes even in therapy <clears throat> don't really care to share the story because they feel like they're reliving it. Um, yeah. And so sometimes yeah. it's, you know, it just takes a while for people to loosen up. And so being able to recent read in your book, um, you know, you really went in depth with, with the stories that you, that you mm -hmm. shared and the ones that really impacted you. Mm -hmm. um, and so do you feel like this is a culmination of, of your time as a firefighter? Uh, I, I hate the word culmination because that makes it sound like I'm, it's, I'm quitting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, so it's more of a snapshot of, of okay. the first three decades. <laughs> okay. There you go. That's a, that's a better word. Yeah. Because <laughs> you're not, you're not leaving. I'm not. You're, no. You're, you're still doing it. <laughs> right. That's great. Right. Okay. Um, 
So can you tell us a little bit, I noticed the book is broken up into parts. So you've got part one is the firefighter universe. Sure. Part two is keep calm, calm and carry on. Part three is when dragons come. And part four is the grief road. And part five is be brave, be kind, fight fires. And it feels like the way that this was designed and the structure that was built in was, it feels intentional. Mm -hmm. Um, And so can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So um, I I think as a premise, and I often get... uh, uh, get reminded that I, I can be pretty dark. <laughs> um, and as, as a, as a basic premise, and this is kind of where the Zen portion of it comes is that is the firefly universe is realizing what the universe actually is and what life actually is. And uh, whether you come at this is, you know, I think of Zen and I think of firefighter as both discoveries of life, mm-hmm. uh, and, and you come to the same conclusions and the conclusions are that life is short um, that, uh, in, in, as a firefighter, we say that stuff happens, um, and that you can have a life plan. You can have your calendar filled out just like we all did in March mm-hmm. and then something happens and, and all of a sudden your calendar is a race for the rest of the year. Right. Um, so, um, uh, and that becomes, that becomes what the firefighter universe is. And so it is, it is life is short, life is uncertain, uh, stuff turns on that dime. And, 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 and I don't think of that as dark. I think of that as realistic, right? Mm-hmm. And, and once you get grounded in that, once you're, once you accept that as a premise, then, uh, we can begin to t- find what true joy is. Cause I, I, I think we could, we get con- happiness and joy confused all the time for me. So definitionally, so happiness might be, I get a new car, mm-hmm. you know, that car I've always wanted. Right. Or um, I get a job, the job I've always wanted. But but those are all relatively superficial. I mean, you, we have to work. We have to s- support ourselves. But true joy is, is a much deeper thing. Mm-hmm. It is it, it really comes from, um, I think, two things from um, uh, having deep and loving and abiding relationships. Right. Uh, being in love and being loved. And secondly, doing work that is purposeful. Doing work that that makes a difference. Um, I, I read just last week that someone said to their 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 mantra to their kids was, "Do well and do good," right? And I think that um, that comes from that first initial understanding of what the, how the universe actually works. Mm, yeah, that sounds it sounds powerful. And so what I feel like I'm hearing you say is that we need to accept reality in order to find the joy. Right. And, and I think, I think the problem is, is society teaches us, uh, you know, if you listen to the culture, society teaches us a whole different set of values, Mm. you know, uh, um, that, that we shouldn't suffer, uh, that, that, um, that it's about money. It's about, it's about status. Uh, and, and I don't want to diminish any of those things, but ultimately, that is not what makes us joyful. That is not what um, uh, what what gives us a meaningful life. And I think I think um, really kind of departing from the cultural norms and understanding what um, what life is really about uh, is an important first step to then moving on towards what we all want, which is at least I think my bias is that we want joy and meaning. 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, um, I think that you really, I, I remember reading that in the book and it really, uh, it really stood out to me. You even defined the different, your difference between joy and happiness. And I think our society does, it tells us to, that happiness is the end goal. Mm-hmm. And, but what you're saying is that we're, we're working towards joy and, or, and happiness is an, is an outcome of being useful and doing good work and being a good person. Yeah. 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 It's, it's the King Midas story, Mm -hmm. uh, right? It's the King Midas story that at the end of the story, he's he's got all the gold he wants, but he turns his own daughter into gold and and then she's inaccessible. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so the, the keep calm and carry on, uh, I think that was the first section or the first part that um, that really started to delve into, uh, I think you had the, the field notes right at the end of each um, section. Yeah, that that felt like that was the part where where the I was like, oh my gosh, there's some. Uh, I think it's actually uh, REBT, the the ABC model right. came in. Right. Uh, yeah. 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 And, uh, yeah. and I was like, Oh, this, I wonder if this guy went to therapy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and then later on in the book, I noticed yeah. that you said, uh, um, that a trauma therapist once said, uh, something to you. I don't remember the quote, but, uh, right. um, yeah. So that, that really started to catch my attention and that's when I really got hooked in the book mm-hmm. and I was really starting to think, this is not I went into it thinking that it was for firefighters and it was like a field guide for firefighters mm-hmm. but I think it's really a field guide for anyone and right yeah and I think that the the messages that are in here there are some really really great nuggets that help kind of guide us especially with um it really hit me when you were talking about uh how you had to go through a rite of passage in order to really, I'm interpreting it as like feel grounded in your work and understand being present. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah. So can you tell, talk more about that? Sure. I I think um, my rite of passage just had to do with uh, my first call where uh, somebody actually uh, died under my care, mm-hmm. uh, and it was shocking. Uh, and, and before that, and I think this this goes to to how we how we live our lives. Before that, I thought I understood life. I thought I understood being a firefighter. I thought basically things were benign. That you know that you know, like an eighteen year old, because I think sometimes you all have that eighteen year old brain sure. that you think you're immortal and immune, and then something happens, right? Mm-hmm. Something happens. That's that's a tragedy. Something happens that uh, is difficult to deal with, and and we are we are forced to reexamine who we are and what we're doing, mm-hmm. uh, and that's what a rite of passage is. Um, and so that was my rite of passage, and I think that's that's an experience. Uh, hopefully, hopefully, uh, most of us go through so that we can uh, get. In, in better touch with kind of the elemental necessities of life. 
because mm-hmm. uh, my my fear is and 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 part of the the problem with civilization um, and the comforts of civilization is it takes us away from those kind of elemental necessities, the actual drumbeat of life, mm-hmm. um, and and uh, I, I assume that some people go through their whole life never having gone through rite of passage until they actually are at their deathbed, but but. Without that rite of passage, without that kind of uh, getting in touch with what's really going on, um, we we are we're lost. Mm-hmm. We're lost. So yeah. and we aren't grown. Yeah, so. and you talked about how before you uh, before you had that rite rite of passage, there was a lot of fear around that firefighting work and Absolutely. and yeah. and the medical part of it, and yep. you know yep. the, the possibility of running into those. So it sounds like your rite of passage was you learned that this is something, while it's hard, that it is something that you can make it through and sure and and help. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I I think that goes to to the to what fear is, and and uh, I think we we all are have things that we're afraid of, mm-hmm. right? And there they can be small things. Or they can be the existential things. They can be, you know, fear of death, mm-hmm. fear of losing a loved one. I was talking to my daughter um, last week, and she is an ICU doc at uh, University of New Mexico Hospital, and she just had a baby. Uh, and we were talking about all the risks that we're going through right now, and and how that life feels so much more risky. Yeah. And people, and and you know, she's dealing with COVID patients uh, on a regular basis, um, and how you have to kind of you kind of have to uh, understand that life is risk, mm-hmm. right? And we and we never get out of that equation. Um, and and it, I think Helen Keller once said that security is a myth. There's no such thing as safety. Mm. Uh, and and I think I think understanding that and getting grounded in that fact, accepting that fact, and moving on, mm. uh, is is an important part of what we're talking about. Yeah, and what yeah. we write I write about in the book. Absolutely. And, um, so that feels like it takes, takes in, into the, the part when you talk about the, when the dragons come, mm. um, I think it's a great metaphor and the, the dragons being not only the fire, right, but the, the big things. And I'm not sure if it, if it came up in part two or part three, but you alluded to it just a second ago when you were talking about um, it's the the three. Is this a problem, an inconvenience, or is it an emergency? Is that the right. third? Yeah. 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 So those really, uh, I think that's a really great grounding uh, right. technique. Uh, can you talk a little bit about more about that and where did that come from for you? Absolutely. So it comes from my dad. Okay. <laughs> Um, and I, it's one of those things you, my dad said to me, I said, yeah, 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 yeah. And then I became a firefighter and I go, oh yeah, he was really right. <laughs> but I never told him that. I never told him he was right. <laughs> He's not going to get the satisfaction. He's not going to get the satisfaction. <laughs> so, um, it, it comes from this. And I think part of it is, um, that, uh, in, in our day-to-day lives, um, not faced with two crises and two emergencies, um, we start, our brains work in a way that we will make emergencies out of things that are not emergencies. Mm-hmm. And my great example is, um, the example I use a lot, 
is we're stuck in traffic. Uh, we're going to be late for a meeting, right? And uh, we immediately go into overdrive. Oh my God! And and we don't. We might not be thinking this consciously, but subconsciously thinking. Oh my God! I'm going to be late for the meeting. If I'm late for the meeting, my boss is going to look down upon me. If he looks down upon me, I might not get that next promotion. Oh my God! I might get fired. If I get fired, I'm going to end up on, on the streets. My wife's going to divorce me. My husband's going to divorce me. I'm going to end up hopeless. Homeless, mm, right? Yeah. So so th- with that narrative going in our, in the background. We get really upset. We catastrophize, yeah. right? And we don't have the, and I talk a lot about mental discipline. We don't have the mental discipline to say, is this a, is this a true catastrophe or is this simply an inconvenience? And I think the one of the most powerful words in our language is inconvenience, right? Mm. Um, 99% of the things we encounter every day are inconveniences. Now, I think the pandemic has really taught us that, yeah. that, um, that all the stuff we thought was important that I have to do um, came to a grinding halt when the pandemic hit. And a lot of us were saying, okay, here's what's really important. Here's what's not important, right? All this other stuff that I was worried about is really inconvenience. It's not a tragedy. It's not an emergency. Don't really need it. Here are the things that are really important. Yeah. So um, the mantra, this is just an inconvenience, not a tragedy, is a really important mantra to kind of learn and then practice and practice and practice. Because if you can go through your day saying, oh, that's inconvenient, that's just an inconvenience, that's just an inconvenience, a couple of things happen. We can stay calmer, mm-hmm. right? And if we can stay calmer, we're much better problem solvers. Um, and and uh, we actually can can use our energy and our, our intellect to help solve problems rather than kind of uh, ring a fire alarm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that something that really also resonated with me was when you described how having to experience those actual catastrophes helped solidify what is uh, you know, a problem or an inconvenience. Right. right. You get like if people are in danger of dying there that's a that's a, a catastrophe right right, right. Um, but uh but you're right if if you haven't experienced a lot of uh of turmoil or a catastrophe things sure. can feel much bigger right sure. and right. you know you're i can tell that you've you've learned a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy because yeah. <laughs> there's a there's a lot of that you know taking yeah, the absolutely. step back and and kind yeah. of walking through the process uh, right. and using your your uh, your thoughts to help your behavior right yeah, yeah. right and, and I that, think in the in the firefighter world the reality in firefighting is that 95 percent of our calls that we go on are not emergencies mm. right uh, there's not a house burning down there's not a life threat um, and so we quickly learn the mindset that there's a difference between, even though the 911 call goes out, there's a difference between a true emergency and, and most of the calls that go on, which are inconveniences. Now, the, the deal is the people who are calling 911 might think of them as emergencies, right? right? Um, but in, in the view of the firefighter, they're not, right? right? There's they're kind of stuff that happens all the time, day, day after day, uh, and we can, we can solve the problem and move on. Yeah, yeah, and that shows the 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 difference between the person who is calling nine one one because 
Um, I think you mentioned in there, they said that they called and said they thought they were having a heart attack when they had re- acid reflux. Right. right? And, right. but to that person, if they've never had that experience before, exactly, you don't know the difference, but, exactly. and, exactly. and so the, it feels like the, the power in what you're talking about is, and there was so much power when you talked about the analogy of standing in the circle and being the, the hula hoop, I think you said was oh, part of, yeah, part of the training. Yeah. Right. Um, right. and so, yeah. Can you talk more about the, the, oh, yeah, love to. So, um, when you go to officer school, uh, uh, one of the things they teach you is that they'll run an, uh, a scenario, uh, you know, like an emergency scenario and they give you a hula hoop and your job is to stand inside that hula hoop and no matter who's screaming at you, no matter what you see, your job is to stand inside that hula hoop and not get sucked into the first person who's in pain, right? And we do that. The reason we do that is um, nothing will cause chaos more than if there's no command presence, if there's no mind seeing the whole thing, right? Mm-hmm. Taking, a, taking a step back, asking the question, what's really going on here? You know, what, what are the real emergent needs uh, versus stuff that we can wait for. Yeah. Um, and I think that the analogy to real life is, uh, when something happens, uh, we can get quickly sucked into going into action. We run to, um, we run to the hospital and we forget to take a car or, you know, lock our house. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's that, it's that ability to take a few seconds, a few minutes, um, uh, in, in, uh, in a real emergency scene when you're in a truck and you're in command, you roll up the window so you can't hear anything, right? People screaming at you. And just take those first few minutes to kind of think about what's really happening. Yeah. What's really going on? What, what are the priorities here? Yeah, yeah. And when I think about that, I imagine it in my mind. There's all of this chaos going on or perceived chaos, right? right. And, and I mean, in some of the stories that you talked about, it was legitimate chaos going on. Yep, absolutely. And you're telling someone, and I know that in the book you talk about going slow to go fast, which is really a great concept. Um, but, and, and I imagine like for most people that automatic response is to just jump in and start doing things. Yep. And we know from experience that sometimes when you do that, you actually do the wrong thing. Yeah. Right. Or sometimes yep. you hurt more than you help because yep. you're you're jumping in so quickly. Yep. And so, it, you know, to to hear that there is this um, this system set up, uh, you know, I read the part where I think you I think it might have been you who was tending to someone who was really critically injured. And you mentioned the person who was the command at the moment and you said, this guy, I need help. I need help. And he's like, I can't help you. I'll send the next person who comes in. Right. And right away, I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, <laughs> you're saying, no, right. I can't help you. Right. But then right after that, you explain why that happens. There's so much power in being able to take the step back yep. and survey the situation, get all the details up front. And it doesn't take as long as we think it does. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. But our emotions tell us that we need to jump. Yep. Right? Yep. Absolutely. And so, yeah, as again, as I was reading the, through the book, I was like, man, you really are learning some amazing... If, if you can take it away. Right. Right? Right. Um, right. And so uh, I, I would like to get to uh, the, the grief road because I think that is, uh, that's a really, it's another part that really resonated with me. Sure. Um, but I'm also interested because I have worked with, with some uh, first responders that have become more callous and turned mm-hmm. off. Uh, mm-hmm. And they really struggle in personal relationships mm-hmm. because they they had a hard time learning the lessons that you've laid out in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, they did become kind of hardened to yeah. the the to the work, and it, I don't blame anyone for that. Sure, um, and yet it really impacts your ability to be relational and to. Uh, to, to really have a, a joyful life. Yep. Absolutely. Um, uh, so I would just love to hear, you know, what you, you have to say about that. Right. I, I think two things. I mean, I was incredibly fortunate to be on a, a fire department that was, that from the beginning was open and supportive. Um, and we talked about these kinds of calls. Okay. Um, I have a hugely support, supportive family structure. You know, because Lori was my wife was also a firefighter, so mm-hmm. we could talk about these things. Um, you know, and I think a lot of it goes to kind of the archetypes that we carry in society about, especially about men, um, that we're supposed to suck it up, right? Yeah. Um, that uh, we're supposed to not talk about stuff. Um, and although that's eroding, it's still very prevalent in the fire department. There was a survey done by the international. The, the firefighter, the National Union of Firefighters, and okay. they interviewed 70,000 firefighters. And, you know, I think 70 percent of them um, said that PTSD uh, was was not a real thing. Right. Wow. Um, and so we have we still have a lot of denial um, in the fire service. But I think I think more importantly is I, the, the problem is that I think um we all often think and use the word callous, and it's like the idea that when you have a wound, a callus builds over it, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I think a more appropriate analogy is that those calluses are ripped off um, as you become a firefighter, mm. um, and and you are you are so much more vulnerable uh, 
to what you see every day, right? Um, and it is, it, is, it is scary, it is painful, and it's how we deal with that pain, uh, how we deal with that pain. It's, um, and, and, you know, we're not a very busy fire department. We've had our horrible calls. But um, I think of the police uh, and I think of the, the kind of city paramedics uh, mm-hmm. who, who see things that are just horrific, yeah. um, that are life-changing. And, and we're not taught we're not taught how to deal with that, right? right? How to deal with that? What is the best, the are the best practices for dealing with it? And instead, we're taught don't deal with it, just suck it up. Right, right. Now, I think I think in the same way, um, as we grow up in society, we're not taught how to grieve, right? Uh, we're not taught that there are going to be losses. Yeah. Uh, that we're not taught that life is suffering. We're taught yeah. something entirely else. So when something bad happens, uh, when we lose a parent, when we lose a sibling or lose a best friend, uh, we're, we're at a loss. We don't know, right? So we kind of we make up what grief is supposed to be like. We kind of make up uh, how we're supposed to feel, right? Um, and, and it often doesn't work. It just doesn't work. And, yeah. um, and I, I think the thing that I've learned is that uh, is that everybody has their own way of dealing with grief. Yes. Right. It is, it is, there's not one way. I mean, uh, Kubler-Ross's stages of grief were, you know, that's a starting point, but I think people jump around. Um, Absolutely. And, and I think, I think they have, we have to say to people, it's okay. Mm-hmm. It's okay. The way you feel is the way you feel. Right. Um, and, and I will support you in that. Um, rather than say, no, no, no. Yeah. I mean, um, when my, my little sister died of leukemia, when I, I was six, she was three. Um, oh, and wow. the, the day after the funeral, my grandmother came in and cleaned the room, took all of Katie's stuff out, right. Removed it all because she, she her idea of Catholic grief was that it's over in a couple of days, suck it up. Right. Mm. Um, and, and, um, and, and it's, and I think what we have to have, have uh, just allow ourselves to understand that grief is different for everyone, um, and that there is no one path, right? Yeah. And, but I think the other thing, and I, I write about this in the book. We had a really bad call, and one of the paramedics, uh, we'd had a debriefing after the, the next day. One of the paramedics said, "The next few months are going to suck," mm-hmm. and 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 I think that means two things: it's hard, right? It's painful, and and just in terms of. What happens day to day? You you don't sleep. You're you're you have recurrent thoughts. You're recursively going through the the death. But it's also it's also not forever, right? It's yeah. not forever. The yeah. body and the mind heal. If we allow the processes to work out naturally, we heal. We we don't go back to being the same, right? Right. We're never going to be the same, but we will heal. And I think that's the message that I've learned about about going through really bad calls and, and greeting. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the key aspects it sounds like is also, you mentioned, I'm not sure where it is in the book, but you talked about, uh, finding your tribe. Like it was the, right. I think that was belong in chapter 26, the belong yeah. piece. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I think it is so important for the, the people, if the people around you are supportive, it's much easier to go 
through that grieving process. Yes, absolutely. Right. If you, absolutely. If, if you have that, so you did go, th- um, I think it was, you mentioned the, the, the first death and you got called to talk to your chief. You went and had yeah. breakfast, right? Right. Right. Um, right. that, that interaction to me st- sounded like a more traditionally masculine conversation, <laughs> right? Like right. it's yeah. that tough yeah. love, right. get over it. Get don't over think it. about right. it. We got to right. move on. Right. Right. Exactly. Where I completely understand where that's coming from. Right. But I don't think that allows us to grieve. Right. That do- right. that doesn't allow, like you said, we need to be allowed to have those emotions. We need to be yep. allowed to open up and, um, and I think that you are right. And it, you know, if we've got 70% of firefighters saying that PTSD doesn't exist, you've got 70% of the people that believe that they have to live up to this, uh, and, and not just men, but the, the first responders, you have to be, you, right. a lot of people believe you have to be vacant of emotion. You have to right. be able to just shut it off. Right. 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 Exactly. And you, I think you even said it in the book that we can't do that. Right. We have to get in touch with it and we have to learn about it and, and, you know, work through it, not try and shove it aside. Absolutely. I I think it's just, uh, you know, I I think there's a, a sense that, that I'm afraid to be sad. I'm afraid to be in pain. Right. I deny all those things. When in fact, I think the human experience and, and you know, what, what Buddha taught was that life is suffering. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think it, it's, it's accepting and incorporating suffering into our lives instead of trying to push it away. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the result is when you do that, you have a much deeper understanding of why we're here and, and how we need each other. Yeah. Uh, and, and what the ultimate the ultimate reasons are for being here. Mm-hmm. And another thing was that, that, that you talked about was kind of going back to why do I do this work? Mm. What is your purpose? What, mm. what's the why? What's um, the I, why? Yeah. I'm yeah. not sure exactly how you phrased it, but that's basically what it was yeah. is you have to go back to why am I doing this? And how am I being of service to others? things like that. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, and I wondered, you know, because I'm, I'm in a a South suburb of Chicago and I work with some Chicago, uh, first responders and, uh, and, you know, as you said, in a metropolitan area, you're going to have a different experience and you're going to have, um, so uh, I wonder if you also have like a very varied, uh, experiences in your life, like you said, you have your uh, your vocational ADD. Right. Uh, <laughs> um, and, I'm wonder, and and it sounds you know you're you're um, it sounds like you're somewhat academic in in general. Yeah. You're a lifelong learner, right? You're really yeah. open to things. Um, and some of I I'm really interested in how to open this space for for people who are working as first responders in these really challenging environments and they feel like they have to live up to that you know that sure. standard sure 
Um, have you had experiences with other first responders where they've been able to kind of shift their their perspective? Oh, yeah, definitely. And I think, um, you know, I have there are a lot of my friends in the department come from, uh, you know, have come from other fire departments, urban departments. They retired Santa Fe. They become a volunteer. Um, and and it's very interesting. I mean, um, where it's like it's like it, it's it's kind of a wrong way to say this, but stuff catches up to us. Um, and so two of uh, one of my best friends on, the, on, on our fire department was um, very stoic, um, very suck it up. Right. Um, and, you know, five years later, after we had a really ho- uh, bad call, a uh, number of kids were killed. Um, and five years later, we were we were on a, coming home from another call. And it was like 11 o'clock at night. We were standing in the station. It was dark except for the bright you know, kind of uh, lights of the station. And he turned to me and said, you know, those kids look so peaceful. I thought they were sleeping. Right. Mm. And this is five years later. And, and um, I, my takeaway from that was that we, you can't repress this stuff. Right. It's yeah. there in our consciousness. <clears throat> we're recursively thinking about it and and it'll come out eventually mm-hmm. it'll come and it can come out in, in in incredibly harmful ways you know the suicide rate amongst firefighters is really high yeah. uh the pt the you know the depression and ptsd and and divorce and alcoholism those are all things that we deal with and i think a lot of it has to do with um that we repress the stuff we don't talk about this stuff we often don't have communities they're, they're accepting of talking about this stuff. And we have this image of what, it, and especially for men, this image of what it means to be a male firefighter or a man, right? Yeah. Yeah. We can't show weak, we just can't show weakness, right? All right? Um, and, and I think once you've gone through this kind of, uh, the, the transformation of accepting grief and accepting pain, I think not only are you a better, a better EMT, uh, more empathic, but you're, and more compassionate. But I think you, it, your survival rate is, you know, your ability to get through this career. Um, you have a higher probability of doing that with with some health. Yeah, yeah, that's that. that yeah, that's really it, it. It hits me, and I, I think about for uh, some of the firefighters that I've been working with, they don't feel like they're able to grieve. Oh, absolutely. There's no time for that. You need to move on. Absolutely. Right? Which, again, right. I completely understand it, and it's valid. Yeah. Right. Um, and yet, I think I think you're hitting on uh, the that time does catch up with you, right? Absolutely. Eventually, right. it's going to come yeah. up. Right. right. You can only push yeah. it aside for so long. Um, and I do believe there's research out there about the end of career when – first responders retire, some of them really struggle and yeah. some of them become completely different person because the weight is lifted off. Yep. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I think part of it is, and, and it, I guess it's analogous to now is that when you're a firefighter, um, uh, you're always waiting for the page to go off. So you, you're, you you live in a highly, um, alert yeah. state, uh, uh, 
state all the time. Mm -hmm. And for career firefighters, when you're on shift, uh, for volunteer firefighters, 24 seven. Um, and, and I think that takes a toll. I think that takes a toll unless you deal with it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so I would, I'd love to, you know, just talk about part five that be brave, be kind and fight fires. Um, there is, I think this feels like the, you know, it's where it kind of brings it all together and wraps Mm -hmm. it all up. So, um, what would you like the reader to get out of that section or that part? Sorry. Sure. I think, um, when you come, when you come down to it, when you come down to essentially what do we need to do differently uh, to really find ourselves and find joy, right? And I think those, there are three things, three or four things. One is be brave. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so much of our lives, uh, because we are, we are informed by fears, and, it's, and, and they're social fears. They're not, you're, it's not a risk of dying or being killed or being hurt. But so social fears, it's a fear of being rejected. It's a fear of, of losing uh, it's the fear of being emotionally uncomfortable. Um, all those things uh, infect us every day and stop us from being who we want to be, right? So what I talk about in the book is that sometimes in any kind of interaction, any kind of day, the most essential question we can ask uh, ourselves is, what is the brave choice? What is the bravest thing I can do? Mm. Um, and, and if you go back to when you were a teenager, which to me, you know, like we're, we're all essentially still teenagers, right? And all our societies based on the kind of teenage construct. But, but that, uh, that first time you want to ask somebody out, right? Mm. Um, and, and we have, we come, we construct all kinds of reasons not to, right? We'll get rejected, yada, yada, yada. Um, but the most important thing in that moment is to say, what is the brave thing? Mm-hmm. What is the brave thing to do? And, um, the people we had, we, want to emulate and the people we admire, um, are the people who have, have taken the brave path, right? Who have said, I don't care what people think of me. This is what I want to do. I don't care what, what society thinks of me. This is what I want to create, right? Um, this is who I want to be. So I I think that's the first thing is really learning to uh, to ask yourself the question, what is the brave choice? Mm -hmm. Um, the next thing, and this is, I, I just learned from firefighters, um, and that is um, to be kind. Um, what someone said to me, they said that um, most people don't remember the, the red trucks and the sirens and all that kind of stuff. They remember how kind the firefighters were, right? Mm. And, and part of that becomes because firefighters have seen suffering and understand suffering. So uh, the, your response to that is you want to be kind, right? You understand people are going through it. You know, it's like Robin Williams said, uh, be kind because everybody has a story, yeah. right? Everybody has a story. And boy, nothing like firefighting teaches you that truth, that everybody out there has a story. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, being kind as an impulse is probably the most important thing we can do. And I, I, I talk about that for every opportunity we have to be brave, there are 100 opportunities every day we have to be kind, Right. And we talk, I talk about radical kindness, um, yeah. which is, which is every day, um, every day, uh, finding opportunities to be kind. And they're little things, right? They're little things that infect our society. It's like, it's like opening a door for someone It's like letting somebody cut in front of you in traffic. Mm-hmm. What, what it's, it's not the Indy 500, right? Right. Uh, 
Um, it is finding those opportunities daily to be kind. Um, yeah. I think the next the next part of it is don't let your ego get in the way, right? If mm-hmm. someone doesn't immediately get down on their knees and thank you for opening the door for them, don't be offended, right? It's not, all we can do is control ourselves. Absolutely. All we can do is, is control how we appear in the world, right? Yeah. And I, I, I want to appear and I want to give in kindness every day. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the other really important um, uh, important kind of strategy. Um, the next one is we got to be tough, right? That life requires us to be tough. Um, it is not easy to be human. It is not easy uh, or comfortable to be human. Um, we, we need to be tough and we need to teach toughness. Uh, it doesn't mean, I think we could confuse that being tough means you're not vulnerable or being tough means you're not compassionate. That's all nonsense. That's all just like, um, kind of either or thinking, um, we can be, we can be tough and we can be kind and we can be vulnerable, uh, and we can be compassionate, mm. but boy, to, to get through life, uh, today or anytime there's been humans on the planet, you have to be tough. Yeah. You have to be able to endure. Um, and I often talk about how if you look at your past, your family's past, my family's past, what what they've gone through. I mean, just in the last two centuries, they went through the, um, the First World War and the flu epidemic, the Depression, the Second World War, and so on and so on and so on until today. Yeah. They, they had to be remarkably tough to get up every day and continue. Yes. And, and we and we inherit that. That's in our genes. That's in our stories. And we have to acknowledge that and really, um, and really understand that it's part of, of who we are. Mm, okay, and that's powerful. And I think it's really powerful to pull in that you know tough and vulnerability and kind can all be woven together. It doesn't. Yeah. They don't have to be mutually exclusive. Absolutely right. And Absolutely. and I think that is that is one of the myths of masculinity that we have. Right it, is that we, you know, we have to be Clint Eastwood, right? We, there is no emotion and you're only strong, right? Right. Um, and so, uh, I think that's a, a really great message. And I think that you're, you're right. And as you've been talking this, the whole time I'm thinking, is this uh COVID-19 pandemic, could that be that, that rite of passage for many people? Oh, I think absolutely. I mean, I think of this as, and I said, the great unsettling. Um, And I think um, everything stopped, Mm -hmm. right? Um, There was nothing to do. There was no work to do. You know, you couldn't go anywhere. And I think it was was, um, probably one of the most significant events that we're going to go through in our lifetimes. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm cautious here because because on, on one hand, Everything we lost was a lot. There's a lot of inconvenience there. Yes. Right? Yes. There's a lot yes. of inconvenience. Um, I, I think about you know, and I think about my daughter working at the hospital at UNM, where they were immersed in this, immersed in death, right? Um, and how it was, um, it was, it was something they had never seen before. People were actually really suffering, mm-hmm. right? And the rest of us were witness to that, right? Um, but I think, I think it is, it's, 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 it's really to me an opportunity to, to always ask ourselves what's important, mm-hmm. right? What's important now in my life and right. to have the time to reflect on that. 
and understand a lot of things that we thought were important really are not. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and my great hope is that I know as indiv- a lot of us as individuals, hopefully are going to grow a lot from this experience. Right. Um, and I would hope that as, as a society that we take this and grow from it, um, and understand a, a, a little bit more about what it means, um, not only to be a human being, but also to be a society, a community of human beings. Yes. And I think that it, the power, the thing that could make it a rite of passage for some people is the learning how to be more selfless and learning how and what, like you were saying, right. what are the priorities, right? right? Like this is a catastrophe for some, not for, it's an con- inconvenience for others, Right, right, exactly. And so taking that in and realizing what is it for you, what is it right. for your community, your family. Um, yeah, so, you know, I, I really appreciate you coming on the, the podcast and talking to us. Well, thank you so yeah, much. Yeah. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Um, I'd like to, before we wrap up, just so the, the release date for the book is August 18th? August 18th. Okay, great. Um, and this will air after that. So that's good. (laughs) Um, and so if somebody would like to get in contact with you, how would they do that? Uh, my email, which is fine is Hirsch, H E R S C H dot Wilson, W I L S O N at Mac.com. Okay. And and then I have a website, HirschWilson.com. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I did check out the website. There's some, okay. some good videos on there yeah, of you speaking yeah. as well. Um, yeah. That's great. Uh, and are, is there anything coming up uh, after the book releases? Uh, you know, are, are you going to be doing any uh, virtual events, any uh, speaking engagements? Right. It's like, it's like, yeah, I have no idea what's going on tomorrow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right? It's day by day. Sure. In some ways, <laughs> right. that's great. And in some ways, it's I a little know. unsettling, right? <laughs> Okay. Well, thank you again for your time. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. And uh, I can't wait for uh, the the world to get to see the firefighters in. All right. Thank you so much. Be Uh, safe. You too. Take care. All right. Thank you for listening. Please take a moment to leave us a good review and subscribe on Spreaker, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. This podcast is for entertainment and informative purposes only. If you need a mental health professional, please seek one out. We hope you enjoyed today's show. All material copyrighted by the Psychology Talk podcast. Music provided by the band Serenati. Serenati.